Welcome to The Whole Truth, where two wholesalers help financial professionals build great practices and thrive in a rapidly changing industry. We'll bring you the stories and voices from those on the front lines of this change, and we'll have some fun along the way. We're building a community of financial professionals who are growing, forward-thinking, and want to get better. Thanks for listening and contributing to the discussion. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. We are joined by Neil Bathon from Fuse Research, a research firm utilized by Touchstone Securities, Inc. And welcome to The Whole Truth from the Bay Area, California. I am Steve Side. And I am Kurt Dupuy. We love a good survey. And so yes. uh, our guy today, Neil, we had a great chat with Neil from Fuse Research, who does what he does for a living. He kind of surveys and set, puts together trends for the asset management world. Yeah. Neil Bathon's his name, as, as Kurt alluded to. He is the managing partner at Fuse Research. He's been doing that for 15 years. But as you'll hear from the interview, he had research-based businesses prior to that that he sold off. So he's been studying our industry for a really, really long time. We thought it would be good to have him on the show because it's good for you all, our audience, to hear about some of the trends that are going on in the industry. And that's kind of what we focused on for this particular interview is what are the trends that are actually happening, which ones are real, which ones are maybe not so real. So what were your some of your key takeaways uh, from this one, Kurt? My biggest takeaway was probably that our industries change at an excruciatingly slow pace. Slow, yeah. So despite the fact that you hear about new products, new ways to skin cats, over the long term, they, those things actually kind of phase out and are not as impactful as once believed. These things that... Maybe you hear amplified over and over and over again that you think are these big trends that are making, you know, big waves in the industry. A lot of times, actually, under the surface, aren't really doing that. The, the couple that he mentioned was, you know, ESG direct indexing, the illiquid alternatives. There's a few other ones that he actually mentioned, but um, rung pretty true from where I'm sitting, you know. Yeah, even like we talked smart beta a little like the kind of the ideas of yesteryear have just not really materialized to the extent that we thought. Yeah, and I think the other thing that I that I took away and you know, it's a theme we keep coming back to, so I, I feel like we may be repetitive here, but differentiation, you know, um, both on the advisor side and who you guys all serve. We've talked about the importance of niche marketing, but how asset managers aren't really doing a great job of differentiating themselves right now. And, and you know, what's resulted is an industry that appears, you know, somewhat commoditized, but actually really isn't that commoditized. It just seems like his asset managers really aren't doing a great job here. They really, yeah, they do a poor job of marketing and communicating their their value add, their their differentiation. And so that's the same thing with financial professionals, right? Like we, we know those teams that are growing leaps and bounds. What's the adage that we always use though? Like niches get riches, right? It's yeah. those, <laughs> those teams that kind of know who they are, they know who they serve, they grow at faster paces than those that are commoditized and will take every Tom, Dick and Harry from the street. That That is a seems to be universally true, both in the asset management world, but also in the financial services and uh, the wealth management world as well. So the other takeaway that that I had from this was just like product adoption is a lot slower than you might assume if you read headlines, home office strategy adoption is also slower. So just because home offices say things are a way or they want it to be a way doesn't mean that financial professionals are going to adopt that and actually pick up the ball and carry that forward. 
Yeah, exactly right. So this was a great discussion. He's a really, I think, interesting guy and fun guy to chat with. So we really hope you enjoy. Uh, without further ado, here's our conversation with Neil Bathon from Fuse. We are absolutely delighted to welcome Neil from Fuse. Neil, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Maybe a good starting point is providing an overview of Fuse. What do you guys do? Where did the company come from? On the surface of it, we're kind of a relatively straightforward market research firm. We just happened to have carved out a, a niche serving asset management firms, and in particular, their sales and marketing and product management function. So it's a traditional research, but really tightly focused on a very narrow part of the business. Got it. And maybe talk a little bit about the types of research you do. We do a lot of survey work with advisors. So basically, we're an independent source for asset management firms to hear what advisors are thinking, doing, how they're evolving. So that's one of the inputs. We talk quite a bit to the gatekeepers and due diligence heads at distribution platforms, because that's obviously shaping quite a bit about how the marketplace evolves. And then we do a lot of benchmarking work so we can help asset management Firms compare how they stack up with productivity and effectiveness, uh, sales levels, successful product launches. So a lot of comparisons is just so they can see how they stack up. How'd you get into this? I, uh, like so many, I was destined to be a portfolio manager for <laughs> uh, Kemper Financial Services. I was enamored with Peter Lynch back in the day. Oh, good one. But uh, Kemper's no longer with us. Uh, it's actually part of DWS, but... I guess firms never really go away. But um, I was in the kind of research, equity research ranks, and then they asked if I would start a competitive research function. And that just grew into a little team. And then I left there in 87 to start my own firm. So that's how these things got rolling. So is Fuse your firm? There was a predecessor called uh, FRC. That wound up, that was my firm. I sold it poorly uh, multiple times repeating the same mistakes. It wound up being owned by Citibank. And as I think you guys already know, that's not probably a place for me to be for very long. And that's what they decided. Then I started <laughs> they agreed. This, this, yeah, they did very quickly. Uh, and then I started this version of it in 2008. Long story short, I did international wholesaling before coming to Touchstone six years ago. And as you know, Touchstone is very much in the value add practice management space. And it's like, okay, so I'm hearing this internally, but it was Fuse Research where for the first time I saw an external kind of cooperating testimony that the number one thing financial professionals wanted from wholesalers was value add. So I was like, oh, I guess this is not all smoke and mirrors. So that was that was my first introduction to Fuse and it was like really kind of solidifying how I wanted to approach this whole role. What are the value added services that advisors tell you today have the greatest impact for them? They love specialists of all varieties. So if they can get someone, I mean, you have a great program, right? Where you help them clean up their books, uh, but anything that helps their practice be better, smarter, faster, uh, better retention or bringing on new leads uh, or prospects. So they definitely want market insights. Uh, where's the economy going? Where are rates going? Uh, they definitely want that capital market insight. And I, a lot of times asset managers don't always kind of match up well here, but they want technical support around like charitable giving mm -hmm. and or maybe it's uh, estate planning or, or generational transfers. And sometimes asset managers don't match up with that because it's not a product that links it back to it. But 
they can really deepen relationships by kind of stepping out a little bit and offering more insider guidance in these other areas as well. Yeah, I mean, that certainly rings true with us. One of the reasons I would say that we were able to and continue to be able to differentiate ourselves as we help in ways that that don't necessarily bring you back to a product at all. And so um, it's kind of interesting that you make that comment that, you know, there's still kind of a reluctance from our side of the industry to go and help with something if it doesn't directly go back to a product. That's really kind of interesting to me. Especially when everything we're doing these days is about creating personalized engagement and, uh, it, it, personalized engagement can only get you so far if you're always tying it back to a product. Right. So it has to be yeah, bigger than that. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. Fully agree. So let's move a little bit into what you're seeing in terms of you know, trends and advisor teams versus the solo practitioner. We're constantly being told and we're experiencing it that teams are the way of the future, team, team, teams. What do you see in there? And then you know, are there any learnings from the people that are still kind of staying solo? Whether it's a virtual forming up of a team just to kind of round out uh, for specialty discipline areas, or it's more likely it's it's actually forming up officially as a team. If you work back from the client experience that you want to deliver, it's hard for a solo practitioner to be able to do that by themselves. Right. And and if they can surround themselves with team members who bring in these extra disciplines or focus areas, it it changes the growth trajectory for their their practices dramatically. And I, there's there's a wide range here. There are many solo practitioners that are still successful, but the survey results that we do would suggest that they tend to be a little bit older broker with an established book that maybe isn't is comfortable where they are and aren't necessarily looking to grow. Right. They've got great relationships. They have a a five hundred million dollar book, but the teams are seemingly much more ambitious and aggressive in terms of what they want to kind of build for their practice. There's a group of teams maybe it's half, that that to pick products a little bit differently. And so sometimes they have a more centralized group. So it's it's a, a different way for an asset manager to approach a team. It may be a centralized buyer as opposed to each individual advisor kind of deciding on their own. So even some of those changes have begun to come out of the, the data that we see. It's also surprising to me how quickly some people are okay offloading the investment management responsibilities, whether that's, you know, a TAMP or some centralized COI function or a, a firm home office model. There's definitely been market environments over the, since 2007 that I could see advisors saying, I don't want to stake my value on investments only. And because some of these wild rides have maybe shaken the confidence my, my clients have in me. But if I position myself as having more to bring to the relationship than just being great at picking stocks or, or funds, then I think they have a safer foundation to their practice. Yeah. So I, I can see how that's impacted their decision-making on that front. And certainly some of the bigger platforms are guiding their advisors pretty actively to use the home <laughs> You've office. You've noticed that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that does come through. Yeah. Yes. I, I kind of nudge them to uh, reject that if at all possible, but maybe that's just my bias. I'm curious, you know, your thoughts on maybe the asset management side in general. You often hear that, you know, in the investment firms, the asset management firms, it's it, they're, they're more of a commodity nowadays where everyone has a good product. Do you see firms really differentiating themselves? Do you d agree that it's kind of commoditized? Sure. I think asset management firms have allowed themselves to be seen 
as closer to being commodities because of their lack of follow through on and drawing out the, the differentiations that they naturally have. So they they all position themselves as client centric and bottom up or top down or um, whatever the, the buzzwords are, and they use the same five or six, and they they just give so little opportunity to for an advisor to see where the space is between them. The firms who do it well do it really well, and it certainly pays off. But I, I don't. It's one of the things that's always surprised me is the, the lack of effort around truly drawing out your your strengths and differences to kind of amplify those and then take advantage of them in the marketplace. Is that a marketing missed opportunity? Like, in other words, I, what I think you're saying is these differences are real. They exist. And why not just, like, amplify them? It's definitely a marketing thing, although I think marketing is naturally wired to want to do this. And I think there's a lot of senior execs who didn't grow up, they, they maybe grew up on a different side of the business that doesn't have as much appreciation for brand and differentiation as maybe they could. Got it. Well, that was pretty well said. I didn't yeah. Know, I won't get fired by anyone for that. That one. was good. I <laughs> thought you were going to come with something a lot more. You're on your best behavior today, Neil. I got to tell it's you. The, you're on and your I don't like it. I, put on. I, I don't <laughs> like it. <laughs> so let's, let's shift gears a little bit and, and talk about some specific product types. Touchstone has registered a number of active ETFs. Baseball is often a helpful analogy here, but can you talk about where we are with that trend and adoption of active ETF space? I'd say if we're looking for innings, third or fourth inning, yeah. uh, I, I think it's known what's going to happen, but I think uh, there's just a lot of firms have to work through it. I, I just can't imagine many firms bringing out new product going forward without using an ETF. Right. And there's a couple areas with you know, a small cap where you have capital, I mean, a capacity issues, or if you're targeting 401k, that's, those two areas are problems. But other than that, it should be an ETF. And once American funds broke through and, and went with the fully transparent versions, it kind of took away the jitters that a lot of firms were feeling that slowed them down. You know, the other twist is whether or not this Vanguard patent where they have a share class extension on their mutual funds, that is the ETF share class. Hmm. And if that gets approved, then I then the floodgates get opened, I think. Alternatives, alts, are like, you know, another big thing that's talked about in the business. Uh, again, to choose whatever an analogy is appropriate for you, but where where are you seeing interest there and what sort of adoption on the portfolio level um, or the, the financial professional level are you seeing in the alternative space? Well, it's interesting. If we go back to 2008, then we had a slew of liquid alt products come out and it was the perfect environment. If you were going to place liquid alts in terms of uh, some of the protection to us, portfolios, that was that after 2008 was the time. And I think we got up to like almost a 5% market share. So it, it, just 5% in a liquid alt isn't going to change the outcome of a portfolio. So right. it kind of, there was a lot of education that was needed to be delivered. And I think some advisors wanted to dabble in it, but it, it just didn't catch on. And then some of the products, frankly, just didn't deliver. So that that really faded. And now this new wave is the next level up alternative, really the true illiquid products. And I know distributors have a level of anxiousness that's keeping them focused on the the big brands, if you will, the Apollos and KKRs and Carlisles. But uh, whether it's T. Rowe Price or Franklin with the acquisitions or firms like yours where you're partnering to bring firms to market, it's 
alts are coming on strong, true alts. And uh, it's for a higher net worth client, obviously, and but they're getting real allocations, not you know 2 or 3%. I'm just going to keep rapid fire kind of products uh, type questions at you, but uh, portfolio customization, direct indexing, we're hearing a lot of chatter about that. What any any hot takes there? Yeah, it's mostly chatter. Um, there's what 450 billion in these products and or service overlay, and what Parametric has 300 of it. So. Yeah. I don't question that it's going to grow, but it's almost exclusively the, the domain of high net worth clients who have complicated tax transition things to work out. And now the plumbing that Schwab's and others have put in place to bring it down market is there, but I don't, what's the demand? What's the value that a personalized portfolio brings to the typical investor? I just don't know what the catalyst is. And I don't know that advisors see the the demand either. So I think it's a long way away before a, a client with $200,000 investable assets starts personalizing their individual strategies. Right. I, I think my my anecdotal observation is you hear home office folks talk about it a lot more than advisors at, at this point. So I, I don't know if I've seen the widespread adoption, but we keep, we talk about home offices. They're going to, they drive a lot of activity at the end of the day. So maybe, maybe it'll grow at a, at a rate that surprises us all, but I have not seen at the financial professional level a ton of adoption. Oh, I agree. And I don't want to jump ahead, but if home offices were as effective as they think they are sometimes, then ESG would be the biggest product yeah. category of all time instead of this fledgling, fading kind of subcategory. Well, I, I want to dig into that in a second, but it's worth commenting on a couple of things that we just said. We talked about alternatives, which now picking up share, but first we mentioned the liquid alts that really didn't you know, direct indexing, ESG, I mean, all of these things. It seems like that that what I'm hearing is these trends that aren't actually trends. Is this normal that this happens or is this like, has this always been the case? Well, how have you guys, were you guys around for the big 130-30 trends? Do you remember those? No, those products? I wasn't. Oh my God. Everybody came out with a 130%. So they had leverage on one side and they went short and the other most long only shops don't know how to short, so they didn't do that side of it, but they charged 250, 250 basis oh points for God. it. And they just, all of them are gone. Yeah. There were principal protected products that blew up. We've always had stuff that's either not delivered and or just never caught on. But the biggest challenge I have in my business is battling the night's headlines because a lot of our clients will read them and then now they should do that. And I'd say there's a, maybe a 25% success rate for things like these things we're talking about making their way in and sticking. Yeah. When I was first coming to this business in 2010, things like um, smart beta or factor investing, like I, do you hear people talking about that now? I mean, this sort of I like mean, that market has gotten to be what it is. And I mean, it's not nothing, but it has not taken over all of investing like a lot of people purported. SmartPay is exactly on mark here in terms of it was going to dominate the investing world. And right. it, it, it kind of tapped, it, uh, hit its ceiling maybe three, four years ago. And I haven't had a question about Smart Beta from a client in years. So yeah. it's, it's off the radar screen. Yeah, well, it hasn't really worked. That's not to say it won't. And the other thing about it, just philosophically, is if everyone knows about it, is it still going to be an anomaly? Like that just doesn't make a lot of yes. sense. So really interesting. Um can we touch on the ESG thing? Yes. You know, I was just personally, when this was the ESG was starting to come down the pike, 
there were some things that I think were kind of exciting about it and were kind of interesting about it. Now, it just doesn't even seem like it means anything. Like it's all kind of just marketing and and I don't know, that's kind of how I see it. It sounds like you see it similarly, but just comment on ESG in general. Yeah, there's just such a lack of clarity around what ESG stands for. And and then I think we began to realize it's so personal. It's, it's yes. so you can't define it because the individual investor is going to do that, which, you know, opens up the direct indexing and some personalization. But asset management firms got on this trend and they were going to bring out product right and left. And then they started realizing that ah, we, we need to be have an alpha situation here and we can't prove it. So that undercut things a bit. And then regulatory bodies got involved and it winds up being for most asset managers, something they acknowledge that is that they should be alert to and that they should uh, consider as part of security selection. I just don't think there's going to be very many sustainable funds. I think I think impact is where this will all wind up. And if you yeah. can have a investment strategy that can deliver impact, then you're onto something. That's clearer to define too, because you can say, this is what we are impacting. This is what we, yes. th this is the problem. This is our solution. There's just more of a direct line. ESG, I, I feel like you, you could go to one conference and have three different people argue for hours about what that means and defining the terms. And we know across all these different product and service areas, ultimately you can go to the advisor because they see it firsthand. Is my, are my clients asking for it? Do I think it's going to give them value or is it going to make my practice better? And if those, if it doesn't click on those fronts, then it's not going to have any kind of meaningful momentum built up around it. So, How are investment management firms using data to better engage with their clients? Pretty much regardless of size of firm that we work with, it could be 2 billion to 200 billion. They want to be able to show the advisors that they have some personal connectivity to them that reflects itself in how they interact and engage. So they, we're not going to send you content we know that you don't want, and we're not going to push products on you that uh, you, you've indicated that you uh, aren't going to use. And I mean, those are just superficial levels, but they, they really want to begin to target the content and the engagement so that they're saying the right thing at the right time with the right offering. And the data is really getting good. If I was an advisor and I had an asset management firm still coming to me with just generic pieces and, and not reflecting that they have any sense of understanding about my practice, I probably would begin to move away from them. When asset managers are coming and working with you, what are they asking for? Like, What's the ask when they engage with a company like Fuse? It's almost always something very specific and tactical. Yeah. Uh, we want to fix something. And I've come to realize almost all of it. This doesn't help Fuse too much, but I, I've come to realize that our clients know what to do. And it's not really hard to get the answer. E execution and implementation is where it falls down. So whether it's product launches or switching to ETFs or de-channelizing or changing compensation and for wholesalers. And these things are really small tactical things. They just don't do a very good job of implementation if there's any change involved. What frustrates you the most about working with asset managers? If there's one point of frustration about our side of the industry, what would it be? The lack of appreciation for what it takes to change. Yeah. It, it's a science. And, um, it's the biggest thing that holds firms back from actually getting to better places is they just 
don't know how to do it. Yeah. Toughest thing to learn is how to unlearn. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Sound familiar? Yeah. Oh yeah. We, this is how we've done it. It's working. The new thing is unknown. Yeah. It's all those things. Margins yes, are exactly. still good. Oh, I've said this over the years. Can you imagine if our industry had 9% margins instead of 30% margin? And we'd have to be so much better, faster, cleaner, yes. smoother. Uh, but so these margins help allow things to stick longer than probably they should sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You brought up the the topic of of wholesaler compensation and structures. I don't know how much you've studied that. It sounds like you have to a degree. What are the trends there? Are people doing you know more things like hybrid stuff, or are you seeing firms actually move away from wholesalers? You hear those rumors occasionally. What are the trends you see on that front? I don't see anyone moving away from wholesalers. I see them saying when wholesalers are properly targeted, their sales alpha is, is, uh, produces the return we need for them. So that's, so if anything, they're tightening them up saying you given the engagement we want you to have with your, your tier one advisors, you can handle four or 500 of them. And, uh, and that's where we want you to spend almost all your time. So, and they keep refining that list, but I think wholesaling has proven to be valuable to the point where, those tier one advisors just don't produce for you at the same level they do if they're if they're marketing only. Uh, yeah. So it's just yeah. Well, clearly we agree with that, <laughs> but I th- I think it's fairly obvious, honestly. But yeah, there's always someone new that comes in from outside the industry who wants to shake it up, and then two years later realizes, yeah, they can't it attract was any talent for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. What about structure in that space? Um, people move to more bonus base versus commission. Anything to the structuring of compensation for wholesalers. Yeah, that's a big one. We get questions every week about, should we switch to base and bonus? And I just keep reminding firms that they hear about it, but it's bonus is really metric driven. So it doesn't look that different than commission driven. So if you said, I, you still have to hit your sales goal and I want you to spend 85% of your time with tier one advisors, it's not that different than saying, I'll give you 12 basis points on all sales from tier, tier one advisors and you hit your sales goal. So it feels different. And I know management would love to have a kind of firm overlay component come into it, but that's not how salespeople are wired. And it just doesn't serve any purpose other than keeping CEOs happy. That strikes me as the kiss of death. Uh, what about the hybrid space? Um, we've t- touched on has been growing out our hybrid force. Is that consistent with industry trends or do you see something else? It is. There are advisors who are perfectly content, even big book advisors who are big production for you that just don't need four or five wholesaler visits a year. They they operate in a different model. And if you can match those up with hybrids, it works perfectly well. One of the big trends, though, is uh, it's hard to unwind, like we were saying, or unlearn. But a lot of firms are starting to think about de-channelizing where they had a separate wirehouse or an independent RA channel. And I think the movement between those channels has been so great that they're realizing they've the distinctions have blended away a little bit. And why not call on someone based on whether they fit our profile of who we want to reach as opposed to where they happen to, you know, hang their hat type thing. I think some of these channels were important 10 years ago. I think they've lost much of their their distinction today. I think some of the things we've talked about in this conversation is maybe an industry that that 
you know, goes down the path of change, but doesn't really change all that much. If you had to put on your futuristic cap and you look 10 years from now, do you think the pace of change in this industry is going to accelerate? Or do you think this is kind of going to be status quo where maybe, you know, we've got something that works and this is an industry that's not going to change all that much? I think the change is going to be real and and steady. I think from a mostly as it relates to technology, improving processes and operations and and saving cost. Once we can make the value proposition clear to investors and and to advisors if it exists, then personalization will definitely uh, begin to change. And and you know, I I don't question mutual funds and ETFs. If that's true, mutual funds and ETFs probably have less organic growth possibilities where SMAs uh, probably move to the forefront in a personalized world, certainly. But I, I think change is real, and I think uh, it's slower than I always think it's going to be, but I think it's steady and that the industry will look appreciably different 10 years from now. If you had one piece of advice for first asset managers, so your clients, but also secondarily our audience, financial professionals, what would it be for each one of those? I think it's a mixture of the same two basic things for each. It's work back from the experience you want your clients to have and stand for something that's differentiated. Yeah. Uh, advisors who carve out a niche, whether it's uh, some specialized type of investor base, they win <laughs> relative to the ones who just have a general. And the same for asset managers. If, if there's something that Everyone has something they can draw out that helps them be differentiated and find that and, and, and work back from the client to get them to experience. I think that's, that's my advice. Can I go back to my story at the very beginning? Uh, as my, my final question, has anything changed for what financial professionals are looking for from wholesalers? 20 years ago, give me three bullet points and help me get uh, this, this product pitch down so that I can call someone and, and get it into the portfolio. And advisors have changed so much in terms of they have become more holistic financial planners, and they need their their uh, wholesaler to evolve with them. And they can't be just pushing product if they need help in in other facets of their practice. So keeping up with the evolution of advisors is something that uh, can really help asset management firms kind of stay competitive. For everyone listening, what's the best way to engage with with Fuse and your research? Uh, we have a website that no one's actually ever gone to, but <laughs> so that would be a first. Uh, but yeah, occasionally you might see a survey that comes through with a uh, fuse on it that's asking something specific about uh, how you like being the products and services and support you get from asset managers. And if you see one and you have 10 minutes, we'd be appreciative. Huge, huge thanks to our friend Neil from Fuse. Uh, we will be right back with our Costanza Corner. This is The Whole Truth. Stick with us. And welcome back to our Costanza Corner, where we like to leave on a high note. Kurt, what do you have for us today? So one of the things that I think if I died today, my kids would probably put on my tombstone is a saying that we can do hard things. That's just kind of a, a thing I want to instill in my kids. It's a thing I want for myself, like not to be scared of doing hard things. Well, I found a story of a young lady that did something very hard. She just broke the record for the fastest solo row across the Atlantic. Wow. Okay. So I've got to wrap my head around this premise. So you're, wh where is she rowing from? She, she left England and went down to Antigua. So she went. Oh, and see, okay. So that's a, east yep, to west. Okay. 
It took her 59 days, 16 hours, and 36 minutes. In a rowboat. Uh, That's I mean, crazy. It's, it's it's no dinghy. It's a it's a highly engineered solo rowing machine. But yes, and the girl was twenty three years old. Wow. So here's your friendly reminder: we can all do hard things. Yeah. Although I will not be rowing across the Atlantic anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, you know what happens when you break these records? It's uh, it's like that old story of how you couldn't break the four minute mile, and then as soon as everyone did it once, fifteen people did it in the next three months. That's what you're saying. You're saying they put this on my tombstone that I do hard things, but I'm not rowing across the ocean. That's a good well. I try to do other hard things, but not this That's hard right. thing. <laughs> Fair enough. Love it. But this is your this is your PSA to go out and do hard things because they're worth it. Absolutely. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time. You can find The Whole Truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. All one word. ESG is an acronym for Environmental, Social, and Governance. Direct indexing is buying the individual stocks that make up an index in the same weights as the index. Illiquid alternative is an alternative investment that is invested in assets apart from cash, stocks, or bonds that cannot be bought or sold frequently. Smart beta is an investment strategy that combines elements of passive index investing with those of actively managed investing that seeks to outperform a benchmark index while retaining lower risk and lower volatility typically cited as key elements of index investing. TAMP is an acronym for Turnkey Asset Management Program. COI is an acronym for Center of Influence. Liquidalt is an alternative investment that is invested in assets apart from cash, stocks, or bonds that can be bought or sold frequently. Factor investing is choosing securities based on multiple factors, including macroeconomic as well as fundamental and statistical, used to analyze and explain asset prices. Alpha is the portion of a fund's total return that is unique to that fund and is independent of movements in the benchmark. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC. This commentary is for informational purposes only and should not be used or construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any security. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The prospectus and the summary prospectus contain this and other information about the fund. To obtain a prospectus or a summary prospectus, contact your financial professional or download and or request one at touchstoneinvestments.com resources or call Touchstone at 800-638-8194. Please read the prospectus and or summary prospectus carefully before investing.